Let us pray. O Emmanuel, our Lord and lawgiver, the expected of the nations and their savior, come and save us, O Lord our God. Amen. There will be signs in the sun and the moon and the stars. Nations will be distressed by the rising, roaring sea. Everywhere, people will be afraid. When you see these things, look up for your redemption is drawing nigh. If I were to tell you that these words are taken from a sermon, you might say, that must have been some sermon, and you would be right. Jesus is the preacher, and Jesus is preaching as he has never preached before. He has come up to Jerusalem to observe Passover and to die. But now he is preaching. Every morning in the temple, preaching to the crowds, and then every evening crossing through the Kidron Valley to spend the night on the Mount of Olives. And the people are doing the same thing. They're getting up early every morning to crowd into the temple and find their place to hear this spectacular preacher. In an earlier sermon, he has stunned his listeners by predicting the destruction of the very building that they are occupying, the temple. Then he goes on to predict the doom of the entire capital city. How did his congregation react? How would you react? Luke tells us in one word the reaction of the people. He says, the people were spellbound. A few weeks ago, I observed a, a church van driving down the street with these words stenciled on the side, St. James A.M.E. Church, changing the world one sermon at a time. And that's exactly what Jesus is doing. He's changing his world one parable, one sermon, one spellbinding vision at a time. And today we are privileged to hear his grand finale. For after today, he is finished. He is done preaching. He's through. He is transitioning from the ministry of healing and preaching to the ministry of suffering and dying. He will be dead within the week. Jesus' sermon for today is, is not a story. It's called an apocalypse, a little apocalypse. 
The word apocalypse is usually translated revelation, but its root meaning, <clears throat> its root meaning is to uncover or to be uncovered. A mask has been ripped off. Something that was there all along is suddenly exposed for all to see. In one sense, our ancestors were more at home with apocalypse than we are. For them, apocalypse was the work of God and no one else. They were eager to see the earthly Jesus with his mask off. They were eager for Jesus to step through the curtain of his human limitations and to reveal himself for the beautiful, powerful Lord he is. The last sentence of the New Testament is a fervent prayer for just such a thing. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. Our ancestors taught us a new language for Jesus. They taught us to sing, Christ whose glory fills the skies, or that great mountain hymn, the king shall come when morning dawns and light triumphant breaks. In another sense, we moderns are more comfortable and seem to understand more about apocalypse than our ancestors. We know what's behind the clouds. We've been there. We know how big the cosmos is and how little we are. We understand the interrelatedness of everything to everything else and the fragility with which the whole web is held together. Was it only last year that we learned that one person can eat some bad meat and the whole world be brought to its knees? That one infection touches all? We were recently reminded that an increase of a degree or two above industrial temperatures will drown millions, destroy livelihoods, entire cities will disappear. Our parents and grandparents told us about world war when the earth literally trembles, and how war touches everyone. It was the poet John Donne who said, send not to know for whom the bell tolls, it tolls for thee. Less elegantly, the Catholic activist Dorothy Day wrote at the end of the Second World War in 1945, she said, that gritty taste you have in your mouth. Could it be the ashes of Hiroshima? Yes, apocalypse is our chosen genre. We have another sort of apocalypse going on among us these days. It too covers the entire earth like a plague. There are many names we could give it. Let's call it an apocalypse of hate. Our crisis of hate 
touches virtually every human category, race, gender, politics, religion, education. It can be found in formerly sedate school board meetings on airplanes and in the halls of Congress. In a nutshell, here is how it works. Whatever moral center you once possessed has been invaded by something alien to God's intention for humanity, with the result that whatever it was we thought was buried within us or suppressed or hidden has been made public for all to experience. So instead of drawing on what is best in us, which is the image of God, we are drawn to define ourselves and understand ourselves only by what and who we hate. It's as if the ancient prophet Isaiah saw it all coming. Maybe he did. In the 24th chapter, he writes, the earth is utterly broken. The earth is torn asunder. The earth staggers like a drunkard. It sways, it sways like a hut. The apocalypse is as global as pandemic and as personal as death. 30 years ago, uh, just before Advent, at the beginning, I was standing in this place right here, doing what I'm doing this morning, preaching a sermon. As I recall, the text for that Sunday was appointed from the book of Revelation, AKA the apocalypse. It was about the end times and the crisis moment. My sermon was not about the climate or about war, but it was about a person, a beloved individual, a young woman, a Duke student and member of our choir who had lost her life in a freak accident on campus that week. If there is such a thing as a mood that can possess an audience or a congregation, you could feel it that morning. Something, it seemed, about life of which we were only dimly aware had been uncovered. Some, some curtain had been ripped apart. Then, as today, we only dared to hope and we only dared to speak about the love of God, the goodness of God, the promises of God, the coming of God in the face of the very worst, that personal apocalypse. That morning we prayed the ultimate Advent prayer, again with the prophet Isaiah. Oh, that thou wouldst rend the heavens and come down. God will come.
So say the prophets. So says Jesus. God will come. But not as a little baby anymore. Now we are awaiting that rebirth of wonder. We are waiting for the true God to step through the curtain and to be uncovered in the world. Jesus calls that uncovering the kingdom of God. And he is its agent. Jesus is what the whole world would look like if God were fully uncovered in it. This final sermon he has preached for us today is not a text of terror. It is often interpreted as such. It is a word of assurance. He's saying, yes, one day everything will be uncovered and it will be me. No need to be afraid of something he calls redemption. God's redemption will be there after the unthinkable, after the unbearable, after the worst. God's redemption will be there the day after Christmas when everyone has gone home or worse, those we love have failed to show up. When you find yourself on a dark road that seems to be heading nowhere, look up to get your bearings and to see how God wants to help you through. Our generation has spawned what might be called apocalyptic men, human beings whose wealth rivals out of entire nations and whose power to control how we think and what we do circles the globe. But the coming of God in the clouds is not another 10-minute rocket ride. It is not a demonstration of obscene wealth. For the Jesus Christ up there in the clouds is the mirror image of the one who has been here all along, whom we know, whose compassion we have experienced, whose compassion is for the poor and the outcast and the prisoner and those who are sick. The same one who announced his mission to the world in a synagogue, in a sermon, when he said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me to preach good news to poor people. Thirty advents ago in this church, the apocalypse was made real for us in the devastating loss of one person. That morning as today, the only hope we can grasp is also in one person. God takes the shock and awe of all the apocalypses that are and condenses them into this one person, Jesus. God lays on him the whole world's worth of sorrow. 
and imbues him with a whole world's worth of hope. He will suffer the ultimate apocalypse in the nothingness of the cross and the darkness when he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So that we never have to utter such a thing. And on Easter morning, he will be the glory that fills the skies and the cemeteries of our world. Now, there's no pat formula for integrating that redemption into the crisis moments of our lives. Each of us walks out of this church this morning into a world in which God's kingdom is hidden. Some of us will return to difficult challenges, demanding relationships, uncertain outcomes, Many of us will return once again to the emotional legacy of COVID. Some of us have literally stood on the sidewalk while loved ones died inside the building. Some of us, I wish with all my heart, none of us will return to situations in which they are the recipients of hate are the expressions of hate. We may even be tempted to join the apocalypse of hate. And you and I know, and I think God knows, there are people who seem to be ripe for hating. But here's the catch. Even when you hate the haters, hate wins. They win. Advent offers alternatives, great and small, mainly small. When our children were small, and I guess when our grandchildren were small, we gave them Advent calendars, sort of calendar that has each day on it covered with a little flap with parental guidance. The child folds back the flap to find a blessing underneath. It's, it's nice. <laughs> this year, Advent seems to be something other than nice. It, it seems to be something other than the brimming punch bowl or a child's devotional. This year, Advent feels like a battlefield not only between hope and hate, between hope and hopelessness. And in every battle, it is every Christian's calling to let some corner of God be uncovered. Our job, we could call it a vocation or a calling, let's call it a job. Our job is not to be first in our class, to please everybody, or to win every contest. It's the far humbler job of uncovering each of us some corner of the coming Lord in our daily life. And when we do, or when we try, we will find that 
It's not really us, but it's God working through us. There's a neighborhood not far from here, I suppose less than a half mile from this church, where new neighbors have just moved in. Like all newcomers, they are learning the ropes of the neighborhood, where the school is, the nearest grocery store, what day the trash is picked up, and the like. These neighbors are a little different because just three short months ago, they were living the apocalypse in Kabul, Afghanistan. They were living the end times. I've been told that it takes a lot of people, it takes teams of people to bring such a family back from the, the brink of the end and to settle them in a neighborhood. And I sometimes wonder whether the social workers and the church workers and the agency workers and the neighbors ever think that in their work they are doing the work of God. I wonder if they ever think of themselves as participants in something so great and grand as the kingdom of God. I doubt it. I doubt it. I suspect that it's more like uncovering a series of days on God's calendar to find the hope underneath. You know, of all God's creatures, we humans are the only ones who have to, have to deal with the future. We imagine it. We plan for it. We think about it. We wait for it. And that is reason enough for God to give us hope. Of course, we have no lack of economic and political forecasts and modeling, especially in a university community where so many know so much. But hope has its own way of knowing. Its strength is not limited by the numbers. Somewhere in Romans, Paul says, hope does not disappoint. I prefer the King James translation, hope maketh not ashamed. Hope knows things, and we are not ashamed to trust them. What do we know? We know Christ has died, Christ is risen, and Christ will come again. That hope is the Christmas gift that arrives as early as you need it every year. But don't wait for the heavens to open. They already have. The apocalypse is now. We call it Advent. Advent.